This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. It's Bill Bartholomew here with you for new episodes, as I am every Tuesday and Friday. And of course, you can go through the archives and find nearly 300 episodes of the program on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Today, we welcome back to the show journalist and author Peter Lance. Now, you may remember Peter from... It was, I think, last August that he was on the program discussing his Vanity Fair piece on the Doris Duke incident in Newport, Rhode Island. And today we have, literally today, if you're listening on release day, on the 23rd of February, the release of Peter's book, Homicide at Rough Point, the full-length detailing the untold story of how Doris Duke, the richest woman in America, got away with murder. And this is a true crime story. This is a fascinating discussion about power and control of the media, control of the elite class, if you will, of Newport, Rhode Island, and you can extrapolate it out all the way to the state of Rhode Island and really on a global scale as well, I suppose. And we get into all of that today with Peter. This is really good stuff. I mean, not the actual contents of the conversation, but the conversation itself. And I think it provokes a lot of thought and it shows the great detail that Peter's gone to in putting this body of work together, this research, the in-depth investigatory research that he's done. And I think even if you listen to last summer's podcast, you'll find today we go even further in uh, building the case against Doris Duke here through Peter's extensive research. So here we go, a B-Town contest. If you would like to win a copy of Homicide at Rough Point, here's what you got to do. Just tweet at me at Bill Bartholomew or send me an email, bill at ripodcast.com and let me know. Do you think that Doris Duke got away with murder in Newport, Rhode Island. Yes or no? From uh, from your answers, we'll let you, well, first of all, I'll read them on air at some point, but then I'll also be doing a random drawing this week of those of you who send in uh, an email or tweet at me at Bill Bartholomew, and we'll give away a copy of the book. How about that? A little B-Town contest for you right there. By the way, if you'd like to support the independent journalism, opinion, analysis, and entertainment that Bartholomew Town has become known for, well, you can become a B-Town patron. Head to patreon.com slash Bartholomew Town, where for as little as $3 per month, you may help to sustain this program. That's patreon.com slash Bartholomew Town. Okay, this is a long episode. We go for about an hour, so this may be a multi-parter for some of you out there, especially if you're in Rhode Island. Uh, I'm not even sure we have an hour car ride. You know, I'm trying to think if I went from like Perryville to Pasco, you know, what, what is that like? Or uh, Masonville to Narragansett. A safe, affordable place to call home is the American dream. But too many Rhode Island families, seniors, and veterans are struggling to find a home or apartment they can afford, especially during the COVID pandemic. You can help change that by voting yes on question three to invest $65 million in the construction and preservation of affordable homes and apartments across Rhode Island. Vote yes on three for homes, for jobs, for Rhode Island. Learn more at yeson3ri.com. Paid for by Yes on Three. So welcome back to uh, B-Town, your episode, what was it, last summer when the Vanity Fair piece dropped. Look, it still gets quite a bit of airplay on a, on a weekly basis here on B-Town. I, I occasionally go in and check out the numbers and it's like, this is something that people are fascinated by and it's something that is, you know, in, in and of itself is an interesting story, but it also reveals a lot about the infrastructure of power here in the Ocean State. So, now, today, we've got a book, Homicide at Rough Point. I'm holding it in my hand right now. And folks, if you're listening right now, you can certainly log on to Amazon and order this thing. And joining us from the West Coast, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only Peter Lance. Welcome back to the show. It's so great to be back. And you are, I have to tell you, I can't believe the number of people that listen to the podcast from all over the country uh, and commented on uh, on you and your professionalism and how much they learn from it. So hopefully we can advance that today. Well, I appreciate that a lot. It's uh, it means a lot coming from you. So, okay, let's get into it. So just, if you want to sort of just summarize, if, if for folks who didn't hear the first episode or aren't familiar with this, we're talking about, as your book is titled homicide at rough point, this is in Newport, Rhode Island. And it's in reference to an incident that took place involving tobacco heiress, Doris Duke, who look, let's face it. It looks like she got away with murder, pretty pretty clear, and the cover-up, if you will, that went into it. You've gone into an exhaustive detail in illustrating this point. If you kind of want to just take us away here and and what sure. is new for in the book and, and how you've gotten so far into this particular project. 
Well, first of all, let me give you the overview. So on October 7th, 1966, at about five o'clock in the afternoon, Doris Duke, who was then the richest woman in America, the third richest woman in the world after Queen Elizabeth II and Queen Juliana of the Netherlands, was leaving her uh, estate at the end of Bellevue Avenue, Millionaire's Row in Newport, Rhode Island, called Rough Point. And uh, right at the very end where where Bellevue Avenue turns to, onto the Ocean Drive, and in the, uh, she was in a t- Dodge Polaro wagon, 1966 Avis rental station wagon, and she was in the passenger seat. At the wheel uh, was Eduardo Torella, an extraordinary individual who had been working for her as her chief designer, artistic curator, uh, uh, just uh, she never bought a piece of art without consulting him. He designed portions of her five estates. He designed an incredible series of greenhouses in New Jersey called the Gardens of the World that were just essential. When he when he found them, they were just empty, abandoned greenhouses, and he turned them into what is called the, considered the greatest glass house botanical display in America. They held tours there for years. So he was a remarkable man, happened to be gay. And uh, as I later learned when I was really researching this story, he was a war hero. He won the Bronze Star in the Battle of the Bulge. So very interesting, complicated man, handsome, movie star looks. And he had uh, he, he was a working class uh, kid from New Jersey, uh, big family, five sisters, three brothers. And he had been a dreamer since he was really young. He always wanted to be a singer. Uh, then he, uh, and he would sing in nightclubs. He was a, an accomplished pianist. Uh, he hung around with the young Frank Sinatra in New Jersey during the big band era. Uh, eventually he started designing hats, uh, at Saks Fifth Avenue and he made his way to LA, uh, and designed hats for Hedda Hopper, Luella Parsons, these very famous gossip Diane's. Anyway, he worked his way up, started to design homes, redesign homes. He designed Peggy Lee's home. He began, uh, he and his partner, Edmund Cara, who was the most prominent wood, natural wood sculptor of the day, had a killer uh, pad, if you will, in Laurel Canyon, where they used to have incredible soirees all the time. And the, just before Laurel Canyon um, morphed into the, uh, you know, the, the site of where the Eagles and Joni Mitchell and, you know, that all started happening. Yeah. And then he had a place up in Big, Big Sur with Edmund and... Anyway, he, he turned, it turns out that he began moving into movie design. And so he designed uh, Elizabeth Taylor's, quote, beach, beach Shack for this famous film in 1965 called The Sandpiper with Richard Burton. And they had just done Cleopatra. They were the, they're the Kardashians of their day, back when the Kardashians were, I guess, hot. Uh, they were the object <laughs> of the world's paparazzi. And they came to Big Sur. And Eduardo basically, like, integrated into that group. And he, he was really close, ironically, to Sharon Tate, Kim Novak. Uh, just, you know, he, his life was, he was 42 years old. And after toiling for Doris and getting vastly underpaid for years, she was a notoriously controlling woman. He was just about to break out. So she asked him to come back to Newport. He didn't tell her it was one last job. But as far as he was concerned, he was about to leave her. Minutes before the incident happened. I'm about to describe. He told her he was leaving her for good. Uh, he asked her to rent the station wagon because he told her initially he was going to move some paintings that he had down to his mother's house in New Jersey, but she didn't know. And then minutes before, a servant, uh, individual I interviewed, told me his grandmother told him they had a wicked fight, as the Newporters would say. Yeah. And then they started to go out to leave to pick up an artifact that he had examined earlier in the day. And uh, she, he got out, uh, they got to these massive iron gates, 15 feet tall, seven feet wide, huge iron gates long before, you know, you could open them automatically. He got out of the wagon, put it in park. The engine was still on. Uh, he put, he engaged the parking brake uh, because he knew how potentially dangerous Doris was because she had a couple of years earlier had stabbed her common law husband, Joe Castro, who was a jazz pianist with a butcher knife, because he made some crack about her piano playing, and she went nuts and went off on him and almost killed him. So Eduardo knew that, and he was aware of how dangerous and volatile she was. So he got out, and he's opening. The gates were just held together with a little chain. It wasn't even locked at the time. And before he, he knew what was going on, she slid over into the driver's seat. She released the parking brake. She slammed it into drive. 
and then gunned the engine and just roared forward. And uh, like within moments, she had crushed him to death. The, the, the gate, she burst through the gates, the gates bent, this two-ton station wagon dragged him across Bellevue Avenue underneath it, and he was absolutely instantly killed, huge uh, damage to his upper body, thorax, his brain, he was crushed to death, essentially. And 96 hours later, with no formal inquest, with almost no investigation, the Newport Police Department cleared her, Doris, who had never given a dime to Newport, had began giving tens of thousands of dollars to the town. The police chief, Joseph A. Radice, eventually retired to Florida where he bought a couple of condos. And then she started giving massive money to Newport, which she set up the Restoration Foundation that essentially brought Newport back because the Navy was had just about pulled out for, we can get into that discussion later about how Richard Nixon took his revenge on Rhode Island and 21,000 jobs in Rhode Island were cut from the Navy. Quonset Naval Air Station closed. Newport was devastated. He moved the entire cruiser destroyer force Atlantic fleet from Newport to Florida and other locations in the South. And the, and Newport was on the verge of bankruptcy when Doris rescued it. And I call it in the book, a murderous quid pro quo. Yeah. And that sets it up. That basically sets up what happened. And so I was a cub reporter for the Newport Daily News in 1967. Eight months later, the town was buzzing with word that she had gotten away with murder. It was a rumor. And I always wanted to try and look into it. And then you know, my life got in the way. And I went on to a career at ABC News where I was a correspondent. I went to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism, got a law degree from Fordham. And you know, I went all over the world for ABC on, on 2020 Nightline and World News Tonight. Middle career, had went to Hollywood, became an episodic TV showrunner. I wrote on series like Miami Vice, Crime Story, Jag. I, I ran the, the Wise Guy, the fourth season of Wise Guy. And then uh, eventually started writing books. And after 9-11, I wrote four heavy-duty books for HarperCollins on uh, counterterrorism and organized crime. And then when Trump made the statement about how he could get away, he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose any boats, it was replayed in the summer of 2018. I had just finished a project. He made the statement in 2016. And I saw it. And I went, bing, a light bulb went off. And I went, Doris Duke, Doris Duke, could you, Lance, could talking to myself as I often do, could you go back 50-some uh, years and actually crack this case? So it took me a year and a half of investigation. I wrote a spec piece. I sent it to Vanity Fair, 12,000 words. They really liked it. And uh, with an editor named David Friend, legendary editor, we cut it down to 8,000 words. It came out in the July, August 2020 issue. And then I said, you know what? This is a book. So the day after it came out in mid-July, I started writing the book. And now it's uh, 438 pages, uh, 105 illustrations, 60 pages of annotations, and 26 pages of uh, kind of an index uh, uh, glossary. And I'm very proud of it. And it's a much more expanded version of the Duke story. That's about a third of the book. The rest of it is a very uplifting memoir of kind of coming of age in Newport, Rhode Island. Yes. And it, it, it all ties together very well because the for anyone who's not living in Rhode Island right now that's hearing this, I mean, there's an air of something, um, I don't want to say elitism, but there's certainly a class of Newport that is that that dominates the the messaging, the culture, and it makes perfect sense why you would have an instance or an incident, I should say, like the Doris Duke Rough Point incident. And today there are institutional outlets, Rough Point in particular, and the, the Newport Restoration Society that is foundation, foundation well, part of me, that is unwilling to um, entertain this notion that you have basically uncovered in great detail through your work in Vanity Fair and now through this 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 book, which is available today. Yeah, I'm in fact, in the book, uh, at the end of the book, I have a chapter called The Cover-Up Continues. One of the most astonishing aspects of the story uh, for me uh, was in writing the Vanity Fair piece was the Newport Restoration Society, uh, which kind of protects her memory, uh, in, at least in, in Rhode Island. There's a $2 billion foundation called the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation. Yep. But the Newport Restoration Foundation is her base in Rhode Island. And, you know, they give a certain amount of money away, but they 
control the 70 houses that were restored. They never sold them. They rent them, etc. And part of the story that I tell is the, the troubled history of that foundation. And when they got word that I was looking into the story, because they never in 20 years of running this as a home museum, uh, the 2020 was the 20th anniversary. They never mentioned Eduardo Torello once on the tour. In fact, I talk in the book about one of the most fascinating aspects of Doris Duke was how she hired these lawyers and private investigators and PR flacks to basically sanitize the record of her troubled life. And she would go in and clean things up. Like, for example, there's a, you know, the, the Torella family, uh, five sisters and three brothers. He had 40, uh, 20 years of earning capacity left in his life. And uh, they asked her just to settle for $600,000. She flatly refused. They got down to 200000 Now, this man made the equivalent of $348,000 the last year of his life as his Hollywood career was amping up. She refused to settle. So what happened was she forced them to file a wrongful death suit. So she delayed it and delayed it. Five years later, in 1971, in the summer, there's like a 10-day trial in the Providence Superior Courthouse where the Von Bulow uh, case had taken place. And she testified herself, et cetera. And basically, she was found liable in the in the liability phase of, phase of the trial, as was O.J. Simpson, Simpson in his civil case after yeah. getting, you know, escaping criminal justice. But then when they got to the damage phase, her lawyer was a guy named Aram Arabian, who was kind of the Roy Cohen of New England of the day, unscrupulous guy. And he denigrated, he eviscerated Eduardo, attacked his reputation, called him a ne'er-do-well, sycophant, you know, just, and so when they got to the damage phase, and, and of course he was gay. Now, if you were a gay man in 1966, and I interviewed many from that era, you, you know, you felt like half a man, or at least people, you didn't feel that way, but that's the way people treated you if they right. knew. And so the urban jury in Providence gave the damage award after all of this, after she took this man's life and was found liable, a $75,000 damage award. And after the lawyers took their cut, the family, each member got $5,620. Now, when I heard that, I said, Lance, you have got to do this story. You have got to finish this story. So what happened was that when the, when uh, Van, they caught wind, uh, the Restoration Foundation, that I was doing an investigation that eventually would show up in Vanity Fair, as I was very open with this great Facebook group in Newport called If You Grew Up in Newport, Rhode Island. It has 10,500 fiercely loyal members. And about four times a year, a, a fellow named Larry Betancourt, who used to work at Newport Hospital, retired, would post a crash photo or something. And people would come out of the woodwork, Bill. I mean, they would just go crazy about this story with all kinds of speculation, right? And uh, so I, that's how I began the investigation. I'm, and then that led to me being put in contact with police officers who had worked the case that night, who were still alive, each of whom was happy to unburden themselves and tell me they're, what they knew of the truth. Nobody knew the whole truth except for Chief Radice, who's long dead. But I was able to piece it together like the pieces of a mosaic, which is really what intelligence work really is, you know. And uh, but one of the things that happened was in 2019, um, normally on the on the tour of, what, of Rough Point is an hour tour. And then on the second floor next to Doris's bedroom, when what had been her mother's bedroom, they have two rotating exhibit spaces. And every year, like one year, it's Doris's jewelry, Doris's clothing, you know, they rotate. But on uh, for 2019, they for the entire year, they had an, a whole wall that addressed they had a picture of the crash and they called it, uh, you know, the unfortunate accident, essentially. And they made affirmative misstatements of fact to this day. And they're preserved on the wall, like where they were going that night for dinner. Now, that sounds insignificant, but we'll get into that later, why it's important. But then they said that Doris settled with the family prior to trial, which is absolutely untrue. Yeah. So they continued to. And then they kept it up for the year of 2020. They kept that wall up last year, which is the 20th anniversary year. And then strangely, and this is amazing, it's very visual, they, the gates, these beautiful, huge iron gates, which are arguably evidence, even though, you know, Doris has died in 1993 and nobody's going to bring any criminal charges at this point. But the gates are evidence of what happened, right? 
Yep. So you would think on the 20th anniversary, Bill, of, of this gala year they were planning prior to COVID, you know, they planned a lot of events. You'd want to have the gates be, you know, that's your entrance to Rough Point, these beautiful gates. Well, they got damaged in November of 2019. I think a catering truck that had an event hit them. And not only did they the gates bend, but the two columns snapped midpoint. So they had to take the gates down and they had to take the columns down. And they had a temporary gate up there. Well, you know, they had three months before COVID hit, arguably, to get to fix these gates up before the opening on May 1st, the intended opening. And they never did. And now there's like what amounts to a little fence you'd see in a cow pasture. Uh, and so when I was uh, finishing the book, I, there's a photographer I work with in Newport. And I asked him to go over and take a shot of the gates, you know. And he did. And then I said, listen, uh, you should take the tour of Rough Point. I'd like you to see if you see, find anything. He found the gates, Bill, like under a tarp, like in a wow. corner of the estate. But even yeah. more astonishing, and, and I'll shut up. This is the last thing because, you know, you let me go and I'll go for the whole <laughs> podcast. But what was amazing is the, the artifact that she was going to pick up with Eduardo that night is called the Reliquary of St. Ursula. It's the bust of a, a woman, 15th century with a crown, like from the head and shoulders of this legendary saint called St. Ursula, that for whom legend has, has it that she died, was martyred in the fourth century AD by the Huns with a, quote, virgin army of young women. And her bones were found, allegedly, that she and the bones of the women that she was with were found in Cologne, Germany. And there's a famous church there above that site. So this reliquary is has a little... Uh, space in its chest, if you will, where you see this little bone. It's a these reliquaries. It turns out, and I had an incredible PhD named Dr. Elizabeth Stewart, who's an antiquities expert, examine the uh, the reliquary, the significance. And she said many robber barons, like J.P. Morgan and people like Doris, would buy these uh, artifacts because th for them, having them in their estates was like dominating the divine. It was like a representative yeah. of having money over the power of money over the divine, if you will. Right. So she was going to pick that up that night. And then uh, of course, Eduardo was killed. There's a couple of weeks went by and then the antique dealer, John Perkins Brown, that she was going to pick it up from, uh, brought it to rough point. And for tw years and years, it sat on a table in the hallway Right. So every morning when she came down from bed, she saw she saw it. And every night that she, when she went up to bed, she'd see it as well as the caretaker's daughter called it a reminder of that horrible night when Eduardo was killed. Right. But Doris being Doris and, and being a transactional narcissistic, you know, uh, sociopath, if, if you in my opinion, she changed the name for the staff. She called it St. Cecilia. And St. Cecilia's feast day was November 22nd, which happened to be Doris's birthday. So uh -huh. even that last artifact, which Eduardo had endorsed, that led to his death, ironically, she had to put in her own image. And now they moved the reliquary after my Vanity Fair story talked about the reliquary. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm no, no sorry. Problem. Forgive me for that. Stop. I'm stop my phone. And I'll, I'm sorry. So they, they basically moved the reliquary. Uh, and it's gone. It's missing. As of late November, it was not there. So why would the Newport Restoration Foundation go to all this trouble for this? You know, I'm just trying to tell the truth. And the irony is that if this book becomes a bestseller, and I hope it will, then they'll rough points <laughs> membership and, and the number of people visiting will quadruple. They'll be lined up all the way back to the Newport Casino on Bellevue Avenue. Yeah. And I guess that's that's the thing is that becomes more of an attraction in a certain way and in a curiosity way and in a global interest manner. Give me a follow on Instagram and Twitter at Bill Bartholomew. Join the Bartholomew Town Podcast Facebook group and discover hundreds of episodes of B-Town on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Extrapolating from all of that, why do you think that the influential members of the city of Newport's elite and those who serve them, whether in the police department or the media or just other folks on Millionaire's Row there and on Bellevue Avenue and Ocean Ocean Drive, why would they cover this up? What What is the main motive, in your opinion? Is it well, optics or is it something the, more? Okay, great question, Bill. As always, your questions are penetrating. So the first, the, you have to break it down. Why would Why did they cover it up then? 
and why are they continuing to cover it up? I think we, if we answer both of those questions, I'm yep. going to just give you my best judgment on that. They covered it up then because, uh, and we'll, and I'd like to later, you can take me through with the, my proof that this was actually intent to kill murder as opposed to manslaughter. Okay. Uh, but they covered it up and uh, because if they had actually told the full truth about what she did, they would have had to arrest her on the spot. She would have been, you know, taken to the women's version of the adult correctional institution in Cranston or whatever, you know, I'm sure yeah. she wouldn't have spent too much time there. But the point is she committed an act of intentional murder and the police, as I found out in my investigation, a sergeant named Fred Newton, who later became the chief himself years later, discovered exactly what happened on that night. And yet the police report had been missing for decades, at least since 1990. And I finally found the police report. Um, and it was, you know, I had already written the piece for Vanity Fair. So when I got the police report, I was somewhat trepidatious to open it because I yeah. thought, what if I'm wrong? You know, could I be wrong? Uh, I was pretty confident I was correct. Well, anyway, the report is like 95% dovetails exactly with what I found. But, and it has even more damning evidence against Doris, uh, you know, basically corroborating the murder c conclusion. But it, the actual physical act that she did that caused Eduardo, that, that proved the intentional act, was excised from the report. Because if they, again, if they had left it in, she would have been arrested. Now, so it's pretty clear that what she did, and I can tell you the circumstantial evidence for this, is that she cut a deal with Radisey and a broader deal, essentially, with the city of Newport. After years, she literally used to put up a chain link fence on Cliff Walk. She was notoriously paranoid. And the city of Newport had been in litigation with her for years over her blocking this important, it's one of the most important tourist attractions in Rhode Island, if not New England, right? To Cliff Absolutely. Walk. She was the only estate that would ever block it. And eight days later, she gave you know, the equivalent of hundreds of thousands of dollars in today's dollars to the Cliff Walk restoration. Then she had been locked away in Newport Hospital the night of. How? Because she hired the medical examiner, Dr. Philip McAllister, to be her private physician. <laughs> now, that was an outrageous compromise on his part. And one of the things, the many things that touched me personally as I was telling the story was the discovery after 50 years, he was my, I mean, I, he was our family doctor growing up. We were really wow. close to the McAllister family. I went to school with his son, Phil, and his son, Brendan. Uh, and, you know, we were really close to them, he and his wife, Emmy. And uh, he was a great doctor. But, and I had no idea that he had made this compromise. Uh, so he was willing to fall on his sword for Doris Duke. And later in the book, I have a chapter called The Duke Curse. I talk about the number of people over the decades, strangely, who fell into her orbit in one way or another, who befell terrible circumstances. And after Dr. McAllister, who was a distinguished member of the Newport medical community for years, went, did this for Doris Duke, covered her up, and, and went overboard in the New York press talking about how it had to be an accident, it couldn't have been anything else, et cetera, et cetera, and kept state investigators like Louis A. Parati, who's still alive, this amazing man who went down doggedly to try and investigate, and he was duty-bound by law. He and his partner, Al Mazarone, who's now passed away, were duty-bound to interview all, as you can imagine, all drivers in vehicular homicides, right? Sure. They couldn't get to her. They wouldn't let because she was locked up in the hospital. The next day they brought her home. Her lawyers came up from New York. They concocted a cover story and they, so they couldn't get to her. So basically there were good people in Rhode Island trying to tell the truth that were thwarted at the time. And then there were many innocent young patrolmen who knew little pieces of it. But as one Bill Watterson uh, told me, who was long retired uh, distinguished detective who actually interviewed her briefly at Newport hospital after the crash, he said, Peter, there's no ifs, and, or but about this being a cover-up by Radice. If you were uh, a young cop back then, Radice dominated the department. And if you bucked him in any way, he would just grab your badge off your chest and you were done, essentially. That's what wow. he told me. So that was why. And then the town, the town was so grateful for the tourism 
quid pro quo. Let me just tell briefly what happened with Nixon. So Nixon lost Rhode Island in 1968 to Hubert Humphrey. And then the, he almost lost it in 72. The second biggest majority for McGovern in 72 was, was in Ro Little Rhodey. Okay. So Nixon retaliated with a vengeance. In 1973, he cut 43,000 jobs across the country and then 21,000 in Rhode Island. And, uh, you know, if yeah. you really, and also strategically, what he did really hurt United, American security. Why? Because remember, we were still in a massive Cold War back then with, uh, you know, the Soviet Union, right? And having cruiser destroyer force Atlantic fleet in the Northeast in New England made it. To, you know, to get to Europe, if, they, if necessary, was a, a much easier task. He moved all these, uh, fleet, the fleet, broke it up into three sections and moved it to the South because of his Southern strategy to pay back politically, you know, the South for helping him get reelected. And that really put America at risk. So what was Rhode Island to do, Bill? You know, tourism. And Doris was the key with the foundation. So very shortly after she set the foundation up and she put Jackie Kennedy Onassis as her number two, just to add luster to the masthead, if you will, uh, when she did that, uh, the, the state passed a, de a decree, if you will, a declaration praising her that, that felt like a papal bull. I mean, yeah. it's so praise <laughs> right. Mr. Duke, we wish you a long life. You know, just they were just genuflecting in front of her for years. So that's then. And now you have probably two or three hundred people. And if you extend it to their family members who work for the foundation in some way, you know, that's maybe 500 to 1000 people in in in, in Newport in particular and in, in Rhode Island. Occasionally, her, her charitable foundation will give money uh, for an environmental cause and Westerly or something like that. So there are still many, many people who feel beholden to the Doris Duke you know, trust, if you will, or legend and the foundation in particular. So they're, they don't really want to, you know, rock the boat. And, and again, because her whole ethos was protect the name, protect the Duke name, clean up after me, get, you know, remove records. The, the actual photograph in the New York, Newport Daily News from the day after the crash, that was taken by a remarkable man named Ed Quigley. Uh, uh, that was the he, he was he was a freelancer at the time. He got there first. Amazing photographs that his stepson John Quigley and John's wife Jane helped me to find today in order to tell the story. That photograph was selectively removed, the negative from the archives of the Newport Daily News at the Newport Historical Society. That's how far they went to clean up the record after her. But fortunately, a copy existed, the negative existed, and I got it, and it helped me prove the case. Well, I guess let's go there right now. Walk us through the incontrovertible, incontrovertible proof that Doris Duke is responsible for a, for a homicide, um, a murder, not a manslaughter situation at rough point. Yeah. So what happened was she, uh, they, as I said earlier, they got into this two ton Dodge Polaro wagon, 1966 wagon. Uh, there had been a couple of rumors among the staff, perpetuated by by Doris and her lawyers over the years that she she was confused with this vehicle and she thought she put it into drive and she she was trying to back up she you know that she needed more room to get out but in fact by all accounts even her a sworn account uh there was a case against Avis Rent-A-Car that was filed in federal court and even though the 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 state records are all gone uh except for the uh you know, the docket sheet, basically, of, of the case, but everything else is gone. Uh, the National Archives, I was able to find a number of um, 73 pages, I think. And there are interrogatories in that in which Doris swears that the, the vehicle was 15 feet from the gate. So the, since there were seven feet, they swung open. That's more than enough room that she didn't have to back up. Okay. She also had driven, she admitted under oath, in those interrogatories that she had driven the vehicle earlier in the day. So it's not like she was unfamiliar with it. There was a rumor that somebody tried to conflate Remember the, uh, you don't remember this, but there was a, a notorious Ford car called the Edsel. And at one point they had like a push button uh, shift uh, automatic transmission on the wheel. It was a little weird, but this had a classic transmission right on the wheel that you, you know, and then the uh, Johnny nut, the uh, who was the son of Hulda Gowdy, her beloved chef, I interviewed him and he's the one that told me they had this fight just before they were leaving. 
he he said that the way he heard it was, and this is again the the the, the rumor that was perpetuated among the staff was that um, Eduardo got out of the before he got out of the car, he left it in drive, but put the parking brake on with his foot. Now I used to have a Volkswagen and back in the day, there were a number of vehicles where the, the, the parking brake, you know, you pushed it down with your foot, right? Which is the way it normally was. And then you could pull back on it with your foot and it would release. Okay. Well, so Johnny Nutt said, you know, Miss Duke, when she slid over, she was a big woman. She was six foot two. And by accident, it was in gear, he said, but she hit the uh, parking brake with her foot and that, and it lunged forward. That was the story that he heard. Yeah. Well, the fact is that I got the Dodge Polaro uh, owner's manual and it was such that you could only release the brake by hand. There was a hand release on the dashboard and in many models. And I was told by the, uh, the son of uh, uh, Clem Brown at uh, Pelham Garage, which was the Avis dealership, Avis generally would buy fully loaded vehicles so that they could later sell them. And, and there was an option in many vehicles, and we don't know if it had that, that there was even a flashing red light on the brake release to let you know that the parking brake was on, all right? Yeah. So the idea that she did it by accident is, is absurd. And then she said, and later she said, well, I confused the accelerator pedal and the brake. You know, I thought I was hitting the brake, but it was accelerated. But in that vehicle, and I have a picture in the book, the accelerator is, is like uh, the brake pedal is, you know, vertical and the accelerator is horizontal. No, excuse me. It's the other way around. Accelerators uh, uh, vertical and you, they're perpendicular to each other. It's not like in many cars today where they're kind of small. Nobody could mistake the two of those. So there's no doubt that she, uh, and, and she also said that she told the cops that, well, uh, the way we would do this is Eduardo would drive to the gate, he would get out, I'd slide behind the wheel. And she said, we had done this a hundred times. But in the, in the Registry of Motor Vehicles report that I finally got when I got the police report, Louis Parati, and I read him back his own words from 50 years ago, and he corroborated everything I said. He interviewed the caretaker there, Howard McFarlane, who said, Miss Duke never drove. We, you know, she would sit in the car, we would get out, we'd open the gates, we'd get back in the car, we'd drive through, we'd close the gates, and then we'd be off. She never got in the car. And he also said, because it was a slight incline as you were leaving, we always engaged the parking brake. So, you know, circumstantially, she, her story didn't wash. Yeah. Now, here's, here's what happened next. She committed four affirmative acts before she, <coughs> before Torella was killed. First, she slid behind the wheel, affirmative act number one. Second, <coughs> she released the parking brake. Third, she put the car into drive. And four, she gunned the engine. And the reason we know she gunned the engine, like, like the roadrunner, you know, and then yep. Because uh, uh, Robert Augie, who was Eduardo's uh, beloved, uh, 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 the husband of his beloved niece, Donna, who helped me very much with the, the father of Donna Lohmeyer, he came to Newport that night. He was an ex-Marine, uh, Robert Augie, and he brought his son, Robert Jr., who I interviewed. And they uh, stayed at the Hotel Viking. And then that morning at 6.30 a.m. was just getting light. They went out and actually the gates by then had been pushed back inside, but they were still mangled. The, 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 when the car hit the gates, it was with such force <clears throat> that it knocked out seven of the inch thick balustrades that were these kind of like runs at the bottom, Bill, bent the gates, pushed the gates over this metal stop that was drilled into the concrete to keep the gates from going outward. And they also knocked off what's called an escutcheon plate up above that kept the gates inward. With, that's the kind of force that they were hit with. So he, when they went in, he photographed, and I had his testimony from trial, the only testimony I had, his transcript, he photographed inch and a half to two inch deep gouge marks, the width of tire tracks 30 feet from the gate. <clears throat> so let's do the math here. I'm going to take a sip of coffee briefly. The, uh, the car, the, the wagon is 18 feet long, Dodge Polera. It's the, the front of it is the, the front fender is 15 feet from the gate. The, the, the wheels are three feet back from the rear. So that would have been 15 and 15. The rear, rear tire is exactly 30 feet back, which is where Robert Algy, you know, said that the tire marks were 30 feet back essentially. And then uh, the, uh, uh, so then she, 
when she engaged, so Eduardo gets out and they had a chain that they would lock at night that they'd put around the gates. But during the day, they just left the chain to make passersby think that the gates were locked, but they weren't for convenience sake because they had a key inside to unlock the lock. And the next day, in fact, Parati and his partner found the chain with the lock through one of the hasps. So it was never really locked. So Eduardo barely had time to, you know, unwrap the chain when she slid over and then, you know, did the four affirmative acts. And then he turned to face her. And I actually had a, a fellow named Harm Jensen, uh, who's with one of the top forensic investigative firms in the country, to look at this case. He just did it for free for me. He was very intrigued. He actually did a video reconstruction of the case. And he said that what happened was, uh, well, also, first of all, I have to say Fred Newton this investigator determined that Eduardo jumped up on the hood of the vehicle, which is actually a phenomenon that many people do when cars come approach them to if they can't get left or right out of the way, they, they try and jump up on the hood. It's just a thing. It's like, a, it's almost like a visceral lizard brain reaction that people do to save their lives. So yep. he's up on the hood. Now he, the, the, the only damage to him mid body was his, he had a, a broken, a fractured right hip. So theoretically she, when she hit him, you know, could have broken his hip, but he's now up on this, the hood, probably staring at her terrified through the windshield. So she blows through the gates. Okay. And then Fred Newton concluded she tapped the brakes. She hesitated for a moment at which point he rolled off. And I don't, who knows what the count was? Thousand one, thousand two. And occurred to me the other day was Eduardo yelling, wailing in pain. He's, he's in the street now in front of the vehicle. She decided to commit. And, you know, she said, I, I can't get in her head, but let's think. Yep. She decided yep. to just go for it. And she, you know, put her foot on the brake. She Maybe she, when she stopped, she temporarily put it in park. We don't know, you know, with the gear shift lever. But she just decided to go for it. And she dragged him across the street under the vehicle to his death. Now, Harm Jensen said to me, uh, this was a what we call a double sequence event. I said, what do you mean? He said, if it had been a single se sequence event and he was he stayed on the hood and she blew through the gates and she just kept going with inertia, she ended up knocking down 20 feet of post and rail fence across the street at the Quattrell estate of Louis Lorillard. And then the car just knocked this post and rail fence down and then just ended up hitting a tree, and then it was kind of like parallel to Bellevue. It was like up on the sidewalk, if you will, okay? And so, if but if she had done that, he would have bounced off, and he probably would still be alive. He might have a broken hip, but, you know, but he would have bounced off, maybe gone into the bushes and been alive. But the but it's it was a double sequence event, because the first sequence was doing all the four motions, getting the car, he, roar forward, he goes up in the hood, and then when she hit, tapped the brakes, and then made a second move, that became a double sequence event. And that's what caused the death. Now, how do we know? What evidence is there to support that theory? Edward Angel was the young uh, first investigating officer that I got to. And he told me, you know, he arrived there first on the scene. When he arrived, Doris was still, he had the avenue beat. He had just gone on duty that night. He was a relative rookie. And Doris is behind the wheel, crashed against the tree. And just at that moment, a young Navy nurse who had just been uh, named Judith Tom, now Judith Tom Wartko, who I interviewed, uh, had tracked her down. She had just gotten uh, commissioned at the Newport Naval Base as an ensign. So she and her father, uh, uh, who was a, a, a Milwaukee police officer, and her mother were going around the Ocean Drive. They were going to leave the next day to go to Wisconsin before she had reported for duty in Chicago. So they came upon the event at almost the same time as Eddie Angel. So Eddie's up at, at, at the front of the wheel of the uh, vehicle. He sees this woman inside, Doris Duke. She's obviously in some kind of shock or, you know, and he says, he blurts out, oh my God, there's somebody under the car. You know, you know, I mean, he just, you know, he just reacted. He was a young guy. And she, he said, she flipped out. She got out of the car, she started running back and forth in the middle of the street. And then this, he said, fortunately, this young naval nurse was there. I'll, and I'll get to that part of the story in a minute. So he looks under the car and he tries to see if Eduardo is alive and can be revived and he's dead, dead, dead. Okay. 
And, and then what happened with Doris, it was she ran into the house. And this is very interesting in terms of what we call in the law mens rea, uh, or which means guilty mind. It's a, it goes to the issue of an intent if you're trying to prove an intentional murder, okay? Doris runs into this, uh, the state, and this young nurse runs after her, not knowing, you know, it, she, she, she thought she might be in shock. She knows an accident. You know, her father's trying to deal with uh, with Eddie Angel and the, whoever the person is under the under the vehicle. So she runs in and she said, Doris runs up to the second floor yelling for somebody she, whose name she didn't remember. I, I think in one of the biographies, she said she, she was yelling for Eduardo, but she told me she didn't really hear the name. But what happened was then she came back to Doris, then ran back out. She's in the street. And when I finally got the police report, Eddie Angel does a kind of a very brief summary of all the uh, witness accounts of which there were Judith and her father. And there was a guy named James Hanley. He was the only person I couldn't find. He was the guy that called in the case. He was staying at a, an estate on Ledge Road around the corner. But both Lewis Tom and Judith said she said she ran him over someone named Ed. So she told both Judith and her father that she'd run and she, of course she knew she ran him over. Of course she did. But she almost, it's almost like she concocted this cover story of running into the building as if to think that maybe she could sell somebody on the fact that she didn't know where Eduardo was. Who knows? It could have been shock. I understand that. But the bottom line, that is another conflicting piece of evidence. Now, this is the killer. This is the absolute, I hate to use the word killer as a, you know, adjective. But Edward Angel said to me, Peter, when everything was calmed down, when it was all kind of quiet, after the world had been there, the Newport rescue wagon was tied up across town. So the Middletown rescue wagon uh, responded first, the ambulance. And that is the one that took Doris to Newport Hospital. And then Eduardo's body took a long time to extricate because the jet, the power jacks on the on the uh, on the rescue wagon were could not lift this two ton wagon, so they had to summon this tow truck from Pelham Garage, the Avis rental, to lift it. And they finally extracted his body, which was severely damaged. Put him in a body bag, and he went to Newport Hospital in the Newport wagon. So now Eddie Angel, young cop, is trying to figure out his theory of the of the of the incident so he can make a report. And he, he opens a pad pad and he has, you know, it's got a pen and he's goes in and he sees blood and skin in the middle of Bellevue Avenue. And his first thought, and then he wrote POI, point of impact, because he knew who Doris Duke was, but he didn't know who Eduardo was in relation to her. So his first thought was, oh, I don't see any blood from the gates to hear. I just see gate blood in the middle of Bellevue Avenue or not the middle, but, you know, fairly close to, you know, like 12 to 14 feet into Bellevue Yeah, <clears throat> from the apron of the, uh, where the gates were. And, uh, he thought she hit a pedestrian bill. She thought some man was crossing the street. She somehow burst out and hit a pedestrian. That was his first thought. So he writes all that down, puts it in his report. The next day, Sergeant Newton, Fred Newton, who'd been his training officer. And here's another irony. Uh, the, the first year I was on the Daily News, I was at a, had a six-month stint there. In December, I actually did a whole article on Fred Newton and how he trained all the rookies. And it was, you know, like <laughs> full you know, circle. I knew Fred Newton. They used to call him Fig Newton. He was a he was a wonderful man, and he was like a straight shooter all the way. He he never on his own would have ever cut any corners on this case. Uh, but so Fred Newton calls Eddie Angel in. Says, "Kid, you got it wrong. Meet me up there." So. Eddie was just, I think it was even before he went on duty. So he goes up to Rough Point the next day. Fred Newton is there. And he shows him, you see that, that you can see where she hit the, you can see where she hit the gates, but there's no blood. She goes, she had told Radice and Radice had told the press that she crushed him against the gates. See, that was another affirmative falsehood, both from Doris and Chief Radice. Crushed him against the gate. There's no blood. There's no, no forensic evidence on the gates at all. There's no blood or trail of blood from where the gates burst open to the middle of Bellevue. But th- there was blood and skin there. And uh, so th- so this is and Fred Angel then, uh, excuse me, Fred Newton gave him the up on the hood theory then and there right there. So this guy went up on the hood. I'm telling you right now. He didn't you know, he didn't really go to the next level of she stopped it. But said apparently said he you know the guy had to fall off and then she just ran over him and crushed him and really interestingly in one of the early chapters i have his death certificate 
yep. which is separate from the autopsy report, which had been missing for years, which I also found with the help of Donna Lohmeyer, Eddie's beloved niece, who was like the greatest researcher I ever worked with because she was so interested in getting to the truth. She helped me immensely in this. And the uh, in the death certificate, it's it's got all of his internal injuries, upper body, thorax, brain, you know, um, you know, and just the fractured right hip. And then it says he was dragged across Bellevue Avenue. So they did give a hint then, but nobody picked up on it in the in the press. I don't even know if people even had the death certificate then, but I got it, and it's all part of the mosaic of of reconstructing the crime. My last question, what do you want people to take away from this book? What would you, if, whether they read the Vanity Fair article and the book or one or the other, or they, just your work in this matter, what should people, particularly people in Rhode Island, take away from your extensive research into this obvious cover-up? Well, you know what's interesting, Bill? The, uh, the book itself is about a third of the book. It's 438 pages. 130,000 words, and, but it has 105 illustrations in it, including yeah. a lot of these forensic documents, but also beautiful shots of Newport, Rhode Island. So in the book, I it, the book intercuts between the, the true crime murder story and my memoir of growing up in Newport, Rhode Island, which is yeah. the most amazing small town any kid could ever hope to grow up in. Uh, and in fact, there, it, it, you've seen the book. There's a map right in the beginning of the book of the southern end of Aquidneck Island. And I have 70 locations marked in chronological order of where they appear in the book. And the book is kind of a celebration of Newport on every level. And except for my treatment of Doris Duke, and I have a, two chapters at the end about Mrs. Mary uh, Ridgely Beck that are just unbelievable because this is the, what, one of the most blue blood uh, society matrons in Newport, Rhode Island, and her husband, Jimmy, uh, was the head of the English Speaking Union, incredibly erudite, distinguished people. Their sons, godparents, were the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. But Mrs. Beck, for a period of time, twice uh, in the 60s, cultivated rats, wharf rats. Uh, and, and that's all I'm going to say. You, you Just that story alone is worth reading the book for. But for yeah. the most part, when I talk about the, the Avenue crowd or the summer colony, it's very positive and uplifting. I talk about the, the Vanderbilts. I, I got the privilege of interviewing Harold uh, Sterling Vanderbilt, Mike Vanderbilt, who defended the America's Cup three times. Just amazing, accomplished people. Dr. Alexander Hamilton Rice of Miramar, uh, who was like a, like a real-life Indiana Jones. These were amazing people. And why do I know uh, what, what, what were my insights into them? Well, my closest, quote, relatives growing up, even though they, we weren't related, were Uncle Bert and Aunt Dorothy. Uncle Bert, Albert Homewood, was the butler at Miramar, a former Coldstream guard to the Queen. And his beautiful wife, Dorothy, a Scottish lady with white hair and blue eyes, was a ladies' maid. She worked for Pearl Mesta and, and you know, uh, Celeste Holm. And they would were very close to my, my family. My mother was kind of a Rosie the Riveter of the law. She was the deputy clerk in the court and never had even gone to college. But, you know, that she kept a job throughout the 50s and early 60s. And she naturalized a lot of the servants in, in these mansions, right? The summer cottages. And the, Bert and Dorothy were our closest friends. And they would we'd visit them in, in summers at their house on Cogshill Avenue. They'd come over at Christmas. And they would tell these stories, these legends, uh, always protecting the integrity of the Rices, of course. But their view of these people was largely very positive. Then, as a 14-year-old, I worked as the third boy at the Newport Reading Room, which is one of the oldest private men's clubs in America, and where I also got to observe uh, the, the male members of the group at close hand. And I talk very benevolently in the book about two of the members, Herman Huffer, uh, an incredible man, yachtsman, and uh, Dr. Charles Dodderer, who was uh, an eye doctor and just a wonderful, wonderful man. So most of my uh, memories of Newport are really positive, and I think anybody that's a new, native Newporter will love the book. I talk, but I also talk about the Fifth Ward, the Irish population that built Fort Adams. I talk about Timmy the Woodhooker Sullivan, one of the great legendary Irish figures. I talk about the Sullivans, like there are so many Sullivans in Newport. Which Sullivan was he? Every Sullivan had a nickname. <laughs> and I talk about the Sullivans of Newport. I talk about uh, Coogan's Lot, the legend of this famous 
uh, mansion where uh, th this husband and wife sought to came from New York and they had money and they they sought to break into Newport society. They they planned an elaborate coming out party for their daughter, invited 300 people, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, and nobody came. And that night they left and the house fell into rack and ruin. And as I, when I was a kid, they'd say, don't go through Coogan's lot. It's haunted. You know, so that's a chapter. I have a whole chapter on what we used to be called the old stone mill, the Viking Tower, they used to call it which is there's a new theory from a gentleman named James uh, Egan, who has a little museum on Mill Street that is absolutely fascinating and explains the origin of the tower built uh, as he sees it in 15, uh, I think 1542 by English explorers. And what it proves is that the tower is really a horologium, a timekeeping device, and that the tower was supposed to be the, the centerpiece of what the with the British, the Queen Elizabeth I intended to be the capital of, of England in the New World was going to be Newport, Rhode Island. Yeah. Okay, not James New York D. City. And yep. so that's a whole other story. So there are a lot of fascinating things. I learned so much myself about Newport when I did this story. And I know people, if you're a true crime junkie, you'll love it. Okay. Also, if the, the LGBTQ plus community Eduardo, I, I really, with the help of Donna, I really delve into his life, his origins, the, the, the prejudice that he faced in life as a gay man. He was obviously closeted on the East Coast. He could be freer on the West Coast, of course, but he, what a remarkable man he was. And the Shakespearean tragedy of him being killed on really what one of the, Paula Zanet, one of his close friends who I interviewed said, was the night before the rest of his life. You know, you just, there were about 40, you can't make it up moments in this book. You can't make this stuff up. So there's that aspect of it. And to finally answer your question at the very <laughs> end, what do I want people to take away? I want people, I want people like Donald Trump to know you may have all the power in the world, which he had. You may have a ton of money. We don't know how much he has. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you know, you could have lawyers, minions working for you as he has had. And you can think you might bury the truth, but sooner or later, somebody's going to come along and they're going to uncover the truth. And I talk about the archive of the Newport Daily News and the importance of local print journalism, which is an endangered species. OK. And Sean Flynn of the Daily News now is an incredible reporter, did a beautiful piece. And of course, the Daily News is now owned uh, by Gannett that also owns the journal. So I think Sean's going to do a piece on the book. But the, the archive of the Newport Daily News is preserved on newspapers.com. And though I had a few yellowed copies that my mother had kept in a scrapbook, I was able to go back and examine Newport in granular detail as I told this story. I did my first major investigative piece on substandard housing in Newport. It was called Newport's Backyard. It was an expose on the African-American community of West Broadway that led to tremendous reform, I'm proud to say. It won a big award, but it also it rocked the town. And ironically, it's connected to Doris Duke, which I didn't even know at the time I wrote it. So uh, that's another level of the story that people can learn from. Uh, so, but here's the deal. The pro sound like Joe Biden now. The Providence <laughs> yeah, Journal out. has a terrible archive, sadly. Okay. It's, it's almost non-existent, but the Daily News had a good one. And what I say at the end of the book, it's really interesting. These archives of newspapers are like paper ballots in an election, right? You can't hack an election if there's a paper ballot, if there's a record that can be re-examined and counted, right? As we found out in nauseating, excruciating, excruciating detail in this last election, yeah. if there's a paper ballot. Well, the archives of a local newspaper are the paper ballots of our time that allow us as historians to go back and, and really get an understanding of the truth or what Carl Bernstein, who I worked with at ABC News when he was the bureau chief in Washington, says the best available version of the truth. And that's that's what I put into this book, Heart and Soul. I don't think anybody who li has lived in Newport and grown up, anybody that's moved to Newport, anybody that's contemplating living in Newport and the state of Rhode Island in general, because there's a lot of providence in this book. There's a lot of upstate, if you will. There's a ton on the ACI. And there's a sub story about my friend from Dallas South, Stephen Robertson, who was the Boys Club Boy of the Year, who uh, 
shot two sailors to death in 1967, almost a year to the day after Eduardo's death. It was the first major murder story that I covered. I'd worked with at, with Steve at Boys Club Camp. I was on the chess club at Del Sal with him. He'd gotten into West Point. He's a genius. And for reasons that are detailed in the book, he ended up taking the life of, lives of two sailors and he fled, but got all the way to New York that night and then came back, actually crossed over on the ferry and surrendered. He got two life sentencing sentences to the ACI, which was dominated by the mob, by Patriarcha, Jerry Wimette, the bonded fur vault robbery story. You know, that's all in this book. OK, not that entire story, but Steve ended up becoming a jailhouse lawyer, essentially, and he worked tirelessly for for prison reform. He helped to set up the furlough program in Rhode Island. He helped to change the rule that you couldn't apply if you were a lifer for parole until your 20th year. He got it down to 10. He got out in 10. He later very quickly became the president of the Postal Union in Providence. He ran for secretary of state, Bill, and <laughs> yeah. lost, but he carried Newport County. And so his story, what I call at the very end of the book, The Redemption of Stephen Robertson, closes the circle on the whole story. It's another true crime murder story within the larger one, but it's it's my way of, of getting a fellow De La Salle boy and giving him some justice as he has given to others. Homicide at Rough Point, Peter Lance. Beat.